It is playoffs season, and I have been watching so much hockey and basketball. It has been great. I don't know about you, but I especially loved uh, this last uh, NBA series between uh, the Warriors and the Rockets. I loved watching the the reigning champions uh, of the world. The Warriors face off against the reigning MVP, best player, James Harden, uh, for the Rockets. It's been great. Now, if you don't follow uh, basketball, there's a rule that you should know. That in basketball, anytime someone goes up for a shot... If there is any contact made between them and the defender, uh, it's a foul, and the shooter gets free throws. Uh, But crucially, the rules do not say that the defender has to be the one to initiate contact. If contact happens, no matter how it happens, it's a foul. Now, James Harden, best player in the league, noticed this loophole, and he has spent some time this year exploiting it. Check this out. So much of the was it a foul or wasn't it on Harden includes video that illustrates where he took off and where he landed. My contention is that the shot itself is more an attempt to create contact or at least the appearance of contact than it is to actually shoot the ball. That's not what an uncontested shot looks like. This is. Here's James Harden. When he's got room to shoot and land three feet ahead, he jumps up and lands in the same place, which is what great shooters typically do, right? Here he gets Rubio falling down, gives you a little shoulder shimmy for good measure, and then lands, again, essentially where he jumped. Now there's no momentum here, he's just shooting flat-footed, but again, you're not flying forward, and you certainly aren't kicking your legs, because why would you do that? Well, you do that to try to get calls on contested threes. Little kick there, looking for a foul call, doesn't get it. Here against Sacramento, momentum carries him forward into the defender, and what happens? Gets a foul call. So, this is what we're doing drawing contact, getting foul calls. You're not shooting the same way because really the goal isn't to shoot. The goal is to shoot three free throws. And they're used to getting that call. And they do a lot. In the regular season, Harden was fouled shooting a three-pointer 95 times. That's 61 more calls than anybody else in the league got. Terrence Ross and Kemba Walker were tied for second. That's insane. Did you see that last stat? He's gotten 61 more fouls on three-pointers than anyone else in the league. And opinions are split on this. Is this a a legitimate use of of a loophole to give yourself a competitive advantage in a hard-fought game? Uh, Or is this violating the spirit of the the law in the NBA, uh, putting people at risk of injury because he's kicking his legs out, people are going to fall funny? Uh, So I'll ask you now, here this morning, what do you think? Do you think that James Harden is a good sport, or do you think that he's a bad sport uh, by exploiting this loophole? Well, I'll tell you, in an unscientific breakdown of of the national take on this, here's how it breaks down and what people think about this question. And you get why, right? Or if you're not necessarily into basketball, let's bring it a little closer to home. Uh, I loved watching the Stars-Blues playoff series that wrapped up a a few days ago. Uh, And there was a moment in Game 3 that cracked me up. Uh, And so just to to guide your attention, I'm going to show a clip. I want you to notice the Stars player in the green jersey at the top of the screen uh, and how he gets into it with Robert uh, Bortuzzo, one of the Blues players. So notice this clip. 
So Bertuzzo's getting two for cross-checking. An embellishment to Lindell. Yeah, your arms don't go flying when you cross-check. Yeah, sorry, but your arms don't go flying. Sorry, that was another. I think it was that second one that really got the embellishment yeah. call and then yeah. maybe, maybe yeah. perhaps a third. So Bortuzzo for cross-checking, Liddell for embellishment. That's right, a professional hockey player fell down three times on the same play. Uh, and so what's going on there? Is, is Robert Bortuzzo a, a dirty cross-checker uh, um, and, and uh, Esther Lindell needed to bring the ref's attention to it? Or is Lindell a dirty, dirty flopper? I'll tell you what the Dallas fans think. Uh, they sure think that he, you know, the refs weren't calling the, the penalties the way they needed to be, and Lindell had to do something to bring their attention to it. I think that we should rename them the Dallas Flopsters. I think that's, that's my opinion on this. And, and then there was this great culminating moment in this exact same game. The, the game is tied, uh, and Patrick Maroon is going to score the game-winning goal. But I want you to notice where this same player, Essa Lindell, number 23 for the Stars, I want you to notice where his body is during this game-winning goal. Stozak controls the puck. Calling forward at the left point with Easter. Back behind the net. Maroon with it. Out in front with a shot. He celebrates. He scores! Pat Maroon beating Ben Bishop with a minute Bomeister gets a puck deep. You see Maroon right there. He puts his man down, and that gives him separation. He's up, able to put it up and over. He knocks Essa Lindell down. You see Lindell sprawled out. His man is Maroon. Maroon gets it and just beats Ben Bishop. Far side. One of the things that Patrick Maroon does so well is he separates. He does. He was flat on the ice again, and we scored and won. And so the question again, if, if, is the, what happened here, uh, were the Blues just checking and fouling people all game long and that's how they got a cheap shot goal? Or is this just a dramatic irony that if you live by the flop, you're going to die by the flop? The same exact circumstance, our interpretation of it changes based on where our loyalties lie. This is what we're going to be talking about this morning as we look in Revelation, specifically uh, the letter to the church at Laodicea, fighting fence sitting. But I'm just going to give you the context right now. Ultimately, what this letter is about and what we're going to be grappling with is one concept, loyalty. Loyalty gets very tricky. At its best, it inspires us to be the best version of ourselves. At our worst, it can actually compromise our ethics, uh, our own actions, and who we let be in our inner circle or who we exclude from our relationships. Just to give you an example on the ethics, um, I remember being a young man and hearing about the Beatles, and I listened to their music growing up, my dad liked the Beatles just fine, and I liked the music, but then I heard one day that the Beatles, at the height of their popularity, said, we are more popular than Jesus. And I I thought to myself, how dare you? You might be great musicians, and you are, but you don't get to say that you are better than Jesus. You don't get to compare yourself to Jesus, right? I feel like that was a fairly, a pretty fair opinion to have about that moment. Well, here's another flip side of this. Uh, If you know uh, me at all, I've shared sometimes, I grew up in Asia. 
Uh, and so for me, growing up in Asia, I, the link that I had back to the United States was my dad's hometown. Uh, so even though I was far away, my loyalties were to Chicago, because that's where my dad grew up. And the way that I felt connected to my own home country was by, by being connected to the Chicago teams. I grew up cheering for the Bulls, the Blackhawks, the White Sox, <laughs> not those dirty Cubs. And that was part of my identity. It was a way that I, I was able to say, I'm an American, even though I'm not living there. This is how I feel about it. And of course, Michael Jordan was my hero. Like, he came to the Bulls right as I was a young boy, and, and my whole time growing up, he was the greatest player in basketball. And a few years later, I heard about this moment where he'd been faced off against Reggie Miller of the Indiana Pacers, and Reggie Miller had been trash-talking him, and so Michael Jordan destroyed him in the game, put up 40 points, made him feel like, like a complete schmuck, and then as he's walking off the court, Jordan looks at Miller contemptuously and says, you be careful, you don't talk to black Jesus like that. Well, it is Michael Jordan... So I guess maybe, you know, that's okay. You know, I guess you can do that. You can compare yourself to Jesus as long as you're Michael Jordan, right? right? See, my whole opinion changed because I didn't have any loyalty or affinity for the Beatles, but I sure did for Jordan. And so I had to find a way to square my loyalty with him with something that he did that, that, was, that was troubling for me. And we see this in all walks of life. It doesn't have to be sports. We see it, uh, we're talking about mothers today, and a mother's loyalty is one of the highest virtues that we can talk about, right? And, and it's a great thing when a mother's loyalty means that she does anything for her children. Mother's loyalty can take a bad turn when it means she lets her children get away with anything. Or think about it when it comes to uh, loyalty to your country. Loyalty to your country done right is called patriotism. But loyalty to your country done badly is called nationalism, and, and they have very different outpourings. Um, G.K. Chesterton, the great Catholic theologian and mustache champion, uh, had this to say. He said, look, my country right or wrong is a thing that no true patriot would actually think of saying. It's like saying, my mother, drunk or sober. Our loyalty should drive us to want the best things for the things that we are loyal to and not just make excuses for behavior that doesn't um, uh, square with our ethics. And so we, as we, as we wrap, grapple with what does it look like to have this loyalty, how do we do loyalty the right way, the healthy way, the holy way, we turn to this letter to the church in Laodicea, Revelation 3. Jesus writes, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write this, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I think this is one of the most vivid and hard-hitting metaphors in all of Scripture. And we, we get it. I mean, it, just, it, it resonates so instantly with our hearts, right? You picture a drink. Drinks can be hot or cold, and either way, it's great, right? A hot drink is so perfect on a cold day. It warms you up or it energizes you when you're sleepy in the mornings and you need something to jumpstart your day. Or a cold drink is so great when, when it's hot outside and you need something to refresh yourself. Hot or cold, either one is fine as long as you are passionate about one. You pick a direction and go with it. Lukewarm, kind of hanging out in the middle, not a blessing to have as a drink, and sure not a blessing to have in your faith. So Jesus is saying, look, however your faith manifests, I don't, I don't care if it manifests one way or another way, hot or cold, I just want you to be passionate about it no matter what it is. I don't want you to be lukewarm. The problem is, is I read this passage, I have to grapple with the fact that I live here. I think most of us live here 
right now that our culture is one that wants, that treats faith as something that we should be lukewarm about. And think about it in terms of the conversations you have. I met a new person downtown St. Louis uh, yesterday, never met this guy before, and we had a fun, passionate conversation about Game 7 of Blue Stars. We talked for five minutes. We relived the moments. I was like, oh, man, I let my son stay up because I thought it would only be an hour past his bedtime. And then it went to double overtime, and now we're watching this thing. And we had a great, passionate conversation about sports. But how many of us have had a great, passionate conversation with a stranger about faith? Statistically, according to Barna, most of us not. Half of us have not had a conversation with someone about spiritual things in the last year. And those of us that have had spiritual conversations, we have to be very careful to temper our passions, don't we? When you do hesitantly bring up faith, you always say, well, you know, I'm not a Bible beater or anything, but, you know, but I was thinking, you know, that the Bible says whatever. Or you might say, oh, you know, I was praying the other day, and, and not that I think God speaks to me. I, I wouldn't claim that, but, you know, but maybe I was thinking, having this thought. We we are so careful not to come across as hot or cold when we engage in faith with people around us. We, in fact, live a lukewarm religion. But it didn't actually start with us. You might not have known this. This is woven into our very culture. In fact, it started all the way with the Puritans, and it got codified with our founding fathers. It actually uh, was made explicit by Thomas Jefferson. This is a quote from one of his letters. He said, We have made the happy discovery that the way to silence religious disputes is just to take no notice of them. To just say, they're not important. They shouldn't be important. You shouldn't argue about religion because religion doesn't really matter. You shouldn't take any notice of religious differences. In fact, I rejoice that in this blessed country of free inquiry and belief that the genuine doctrine of only one God is reviving. I'll explain that in a minute. And I trust that there is not a young man now living in the United States who will not die a Unitarian. When Jefferson says one God, we might read that with Christian lenses and think, oh, he's talking about us. No, what he means by that is belief in the Trinity he thought was, was wrong and awful and led to problems. When he says belief in one God, he means only one God, some sort of vague, deist, benevolent being. There's no Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ was not Lord, never claimed to be Lord and shouldn't be. And when he said he's rejoicing that people are going to not die without being Unitarian, what he meant was that he thought that by the end of his life, the whole country would be Unitarian in its disposition. And the Unitarian doctrine is basically this, that uh, Jesus is not Lord, and that the number one principle is tolerance. And that there is no doctrine, there is no theology that is worth fighting about. You shouldn't argue with other people, and you shouldn't think that religious doctrines are important enough that they actually matter in our engagement with the world. This is what Jefferson believed and what he thought our country should be. Now, Dr. Joel Okamoto, who's one of the respected professors here at Concordia Seminary, our denomination's seminary, uh, he's got a reputation as a brilliant mind and also as being impossible to get an A in his class. Uh, He wrote this about this quote. He said, By requiring the government to be theologically neutral in the disestablishment of religion, the American founders actually had a definite theological purpose— to promote theological indifference, or, in the words of Revelation 3, lukewarm religion. He continues, this theological indifference, this lukewarm religion, was thought to promote a hedge against that fanaticism which endangers the civil peace. You right here, If you're sitting here and you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that he rose from the dead, you are 
in Thomas Jefferson's opinion, a fanatic, and he considers you a threat to the civil peace. So we see now that this is actually nothing new for us, that this, this thing that, oh, you can have a faith as long as you keep it to yourself, as long as you're not too passionate about it, moderation in all things. It's okay to go to church on Sunday, but don't, don't actually live out your faith like it matters the other six days because that could turn someone else off. It didn't start with us. It started 200-plus years ago. Now, here's the thing, and I'm going to say this as a pastor. There's a case to be made that Thomas Jefferson was right. There's a case to be made that, in fact, our country is doing as well as it is today because of lukewarm religion. I mean, look around. We're, we're pretty wealthy. We're, we're sure better off than 99% of the rest of the world's countries. We're pretty stable. We don't have the kinds of infighting uh, and secular uh, or, uh, sectarianism that other countries have. If you ask people, even if they might be dismayed about some of the direction of our country, if you ask them personally, are you hopeful or optimistic that your success and fulfillment in life lies in your own control? The answer by almost all of us is yes. We think we're doing pretty well. We're sure doing better than most countries. Lukewarm religion's doing all right for us. And what's so fascinating is when you look at this letter to the church in Laodicea, they were in the exact same situation that we are in right now as 21st century Americans. Because the letter continues and it says this. He says, look, you say, this is the, the church, you know, and again, these are the Christians in Laodicea. You say, look, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need a thing. We're doing fine. We're comfortable. We're wealthy. We're secure. We're great. And if you've been paying attention the first few weeks of this series, or if you go back and look yourself at the letters to the other churches in Revelation, all the other churches are facing persecution, death, martyrdom, problems, their, their wealth's being taken away. But this church, this church with the lukewarm faith, they're not being persecuted. They're not being judged. They're not having their wealth stolen because of their faith. They're doing just fine. Sounds pretty similar, doesn't it? But what Jesus says to them, he says, look, you think that you're rich and you're wealthy and you don't, you don't need anything, but you don't know what's really going on. You don't realize that, that deep down inside you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. All your outside stuff's doing all right, but deep down inside you got fear, you got anxiety, you're, you're, you're worried that the other shoe's going to drop. You're waiting for people that are going to come and steal your wealth and your comfort away. You look good on the outside, I promise you. I can see you're not doing well on the inside. And so here's his advice. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Exchange your earthly gold for my gold so you can become truly rich and, and get from me white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and, and get from me salve to put on your eyes so that you can see what's really going on. He's saying, I want you to see below the surface. I want you to understand what's really happening in your life where, yes, you've got external comfort and prosperity, but there's something deeper. I need you to, see, to take this salve from me, get spiritual eyes so that you can see. And to help us with that, he then gives us the rest of Revelation with all of this vivid, graphic, comic book imagery to help us see the things that we wouldn't notice otherwise that's going on in our lives. So we turn to Revelation 13, and we're going to see what's going on behind the scenes to help us understand what Jesus means in his letter to Laodicea. So it starts with, verse 1, this dragon stood on the shore of the sea. 
Now, if you were here last week, you heard about this dragon. And if you weren't, go back and watch Dion Garrett's video on this. This dragon is the devil, the accuser. Uh, and if you want to understand more about the call-out culture of judgment and condemnation that we live in, go watch last week's. So you're really going to be blessed by that. But that was last week. Today, we're not focusing on the dragon and his actions. We're about to learn about the dragon's two henchmen. You see, the devil doesn't act directly on us. You know, the, the devil works better with subterfuge and staying below the radar. He's got two beasts that do the dirty work for him. So let's look at these two henchmen. So the first one, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name was written. And this beast I saw resembled a leopard, but it also had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. What a grotesque image. What kind of a monstrous beast has horns and, and, uh, and feet like a bear and, and all these different things? I mean, it, it's hard to even visualize. You look at it drawn out and you say, that, that's just so weird. It wasn't weird to the Laodiceans. Or it might not be weird even to people today if you've ever read the book of Daniel. See, Daniel was another prophet of God's people, and Daniel described a vision that he had several hundred years before John wrote Revelation. And in Daniel's vision, four beasts came out of the sea. And one was like a leopard, but a monstrous leopard. One was like a bear. One was like a lion. But there was a fourth beast greater than all of them with horns and teeth made of iron. And this beast destroyed all the other ones and, and was more powerful than anything else in the land. And now the nice thing about John making this connection for us is that Daniel tells us who the beast represents. So we don't have to guess what John meant in Revelation. The beasts represent the powers of earthly nations. And each of the four beasts was a different nation, culminating in the final greatest beast of all that devours everything else. And that beast was the Roman Empire. And now John is writing to the church in Laodicea. They're in the Roman Empire. And he's saying, you don't even need four separate beasts anymore. This is all just one big beast. And this beast is not just Rome. It's every nation, government, anything that wields the power to try to coerce people to its will. Let's look a little more about what he means by that. So he describes the actions of the beast now. So this, the dragon, the devil, gave the beast from the sea the power uh, of, of civil government, his power and his throne and great authority. You see how this is, um, this is government stuff? People worship the dragon because he had given authority to the beast, and they also worship the beast. And they ask, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. Everyone is going to recognize the might and power of civil authority. Everyone's going to look at the armies and say, who's going to stand up against an earthly army? Like if a nation's got an army, that, that wins, right? Unless your army's stronger, in which case now you're trusting in your own army. All inhabitants of the earth are going to worship the power, the control, the wealth, the comfort and security that this beast promises. All whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. See, this beast is set up in contrast to the Lamb of Jesus Christ. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, it's easy to try and figure out, oh, who, who does this beast represent? It must be one particular dictator or maybe one particular nation. But I think it's important for us to recognize that it's, it's truly intended to be 
anything that claims um, our highest allegiance because it promises us comfort, wealth, prosperity, security. Anything that promises that to us instead of the Lamb of God is the beast. We don't have to get all hung up on, oh, does it represent this person or this country or that nation? It's anything that, that tempts us, that claims us to shift our allegiance to it for these earthly benefits rather than Jesus. But that's not the only henchman the devil has working for him. He's got a second beast that's coming. Then I saw the second beast coming out of the earth this time. Uh, It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It's a literal dragon in sheep's clothing trying to trick God's faithful people. Because who is the lamb in Revelation? The lamb is Jesus Christ. And this beast is trying to pretend to be Jesus Christ to us. All right, so what does it do? How how does it do that? Well, let's, let's look at its actions. So this beast exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands or on their foreheads so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name, 666. Now we're getting into the good stuff, this, this crazy far-out symbolism of Revelation. But we're also getting a little confused, maybe, because, again, we get to this weird uh, image that doesn't really land for us. I mean, there's this beast that comes out of the earth, and it's got, like, lamb, you know, horns like a lamb, but ultimately it's going to put these names on our foreheads. People don't walk around wearing the marks of their loyalty on their foreheads. That's just ridiculous. We don't have any frame of context for that. What could they possibly mean? People walk around with the mark of loyalty on their foreheads. I'll tell you, when we, um, when we did move back to the States, we settled in uh, Colorado. And so for 25 years, I followed the Denver Broncos faithfully because this is my new home team. And I was so excited in 2012 because they acquired the greatest quarterback of all time, Peyton Manning. And he came to them, and it was everything we hoped it would be. The the very first game that we had with Peyton Manning, we played against the Baltimore Ravens, and Manning threw seven touchdowns in a single game. Set a record that never happens. And the whole rest of the season, I just loved as I followed them, as they set offensive records, as they destroyed the competition. They finished the season 13-3, and hands-down favorites to win the Super Bowl. And in fact, their very first matchup in the playoffs, they got to face off against the Baltimore Ravens, the same team that they'd scored seven touchdowns on earlier in the season. And with 30 seconds left in the game, the Broncos are winning by seven points. And Joe Flacco, a journeyman pedestrian quarterback, if you've ever heard of the type, Throws a Hail Mary pass, scores a touchdown, Ravens win in overtime, and the Broncos are out of the playoffs, and they don't win the Super Bowl. And I was devastated. I didn't eat for a day. I couldn't. My stomach was just all torn up in knots. But it forced me to confront my own feelings in this moment. I thought, why is this ruining my life so much? Like, is my career any better or worse because the Broncos are in the, are in the playoffs or not? 
Is my relationship with my wife any worse because I'm not cheering them on and watching their games for the rest of this, of this tournament? If anything, it's probably better because my wife was happy to have me stop griping about the Broncos. Were my children's future careers impacted in any way by whether the Broncos hoisted a Super Bowl trophy or not? What was it that let this thing that should have no bearing on my life, why could it destroy and wreck me so much? Because this is how the beast of the earth works, and this is what it represents. The beast of the earth is anything that promises us that emotional well-being, that spiritual comfort or security. It's called the religious beast in the commentaries. And it can be explicitly a false prophet. It can be a religion, an actual religion, a false religion, or even a branch of Christianity that's, that's gone too far away from this message of Christ who wants us to be in a relationship with him. But at its broadest sense, it's anything that steals our affections, our emotional comfort, and our, and our emotional loyalty to something else. And I was forced to confront that in all that season, I'd spent hours watching highlights, reading articles, looking at rosters, anticipating matchups. And I'd spent more time investing in my own affinity and loyalty to this team that ultimately owes me nothing than I had that entire season investing in my relationship with Jesus Christ, who's given me everything. See, people get really hung up when they read Revelation. They, they want to figure out who the beast of the sea is. They want to figure out who the Antichrist is. And they certainly want to point fingers and say, we Christians, we don't have any truck with these beasts. That's for the other people. Every one of us is constantly grappling with our own loyalties and allegiances. Every one of us is deciding in any moment where we put our heart, where we put our trust, where we put our hope. I had a crossroads moment in 2012. It wasn't my first. It's not been my last. But we've got to figure out what do we put our trust in in this life. Because ultimately, there's going to come a moment where whatever that thing is for you, it's going to let you down. The team is going to lose. The government's going to do something wrong that it shouldn't. A relationship is going to let you down. Someone that you thought was your bedrock that you could count on is going to disappoint you. And in that moment, you're going to feel something. And this is what Revelation is painting the behind the scenes. See, all the rest of 13 uh, and 14 uh, is, is saying we are being put to the test in these moments. Where does our hope and our comfort and our loyalty lie? See, he puts it this way. He reminds us, look, the beast required everyone to get a mark on their forehead to show their loyalty to whatever it is, the thing that gives you earthly prosperity and comfort or the thing that gives you emotional, spiritual surety, or Christ gives you another option. See, behind the scenes, John sees that the lamb, the real lamb, not a dragon pretending to be a lamb, is standing on Mount Zion, and with him are 144,000 who have his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. In the moment of crisis, you're going to have one name or another that, that you have branded yourself with. And it's going to be your choice, no one else's. It's going to be the things that you have over and over again decided you're going to put your hope and comfort in. And in that moment of crisis, it's one or the other. The mark of the beast in whatever form it takes or the name of Jesus who died for you. And Jesus says in that moment, the people that have the mark of the beast, he's going to come back for them. But blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed and is not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Because the ones who have the other name, they will in that moment realize that they are naked and exposed. 
They're going to look at the thing they put their hope in, and it's going to not. It's going to crumble around them. And in that moment, they're going to experience the true wretchedness of their condition in a way that they've been able to distract themselves from before. Laodiceans, you're rich and wealthy, and you don't want for anything. You're doing fine until this moment comes when you are left naked and ashamed. But here's his promise. Go back to the letter in Laodicea. Look back at this verse again. He says, no, no, but I offer you something better. You put your, your hope and your trust and your comfort in gold, this beast of the seas, you know, prosperity and wealth. You put it in gold. I've got better gold for you, gold that's been refined in the fire that cannot be stolen or lost in bad investments so that you can become truly rich. I've got white clothes for you so that you don't have to cover your shamefulness with the things that you try and cobble together in this life because I want you to have my wealth, my clothes, my comfort and protection. See, from the dawn of time, Christ has been loyal to you. Even as you're lukewarm, even as we waver in our affections, even as we put our hope and trust in other things that let us fall short, he says, I don't want that for you, and I've never let that count uh, against what I'm going to be willing to do for you. In fact, he continues on. He says, I know I've spoken harshly to you. I know I've said I was going to spit you out, but listen. Listen to what I'm saying to you. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. He's, I'm not saying this to you because all hope is gone. I'm not saying this to you because I want to spit you out. I'm saying this to you because I love you. Because I want you to have the wealth that will not go away. I want you to have the clothes that will not leave you naked and ashamed. Just like a coach who rides a player really hard and gives them more drills and more exercises and never lets up, it's because the coach wants something greater for that player. Jesus is saying to us, look, I am loyal to you because I loved you first. And I don't want you to be lukewarm because I actually have better things in mind for you. I know that you have more waiting for you, and I don't want you to be left disappointed when this thing that you've put your loyalty in ultimately lets you down. And then he paints a picture for us that can guide us moving forward from this point on. This is the picture. He says, look, here I am. I'm standing at the door and knocking And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and I will eat with that person and they with me. See, for all his rhetoric, I'll spit you out. Like, if you're lukewarm, I gotta spit you out. He says, but but I don't want that. I'm gonna just stay here at the door. I'm gonna be knocking and knocking and knocking until the moment you let me in because I want nothing more than to share in the bounty and wealth of my table with you. I want you to have the finest things. I want you to have a meal that refreshes and satisfies, not just in this life, but always. I want you at my table. And it's his loyalty to us that earns us the seat at that table, not anything that we can choose ourselves. So here's here's the picture. If you happen to watch Game 7 of the Stars-Blues game, you got to see an amazing performance by the Dallas Stars goalie, Ben Bishop. For 86 minutes, Bishop stood on his head, blocking every shot the Blues could throw at him until finally, in double overtime, Patrick Maroon scores the game-winning goal. But if you watched after the game, you would have seen Ben Bishop and Patrick Maroon skate towards each other and embrace each other. And you would think, how can this be? This one's loyal to the stars. This one plays for the blues. How can they be embracing each other if you didn't know that these are both actually St. Louis boys, raised and bred, grew up playing hockey together. And they actually had a higher allegiance than what jersey they happened to be wearing that night. They had an allegiance to a brother who had supported them, played with them, shared their passion 
with them. Or think about a Democrat and a Republican who can both say to each other, I see that you have a higher allegiance, that you are a true patriot of this country, and you just want this country to be the best version of itself. And even though our methods and approaches to achieving that might differ, we can respect this higher allegiance that says we share a table because we are all Americans at the end of the day. Or it looks like you and me putting our trust and hope in gold that cannot be stolen, clothes that cannot be ripped away, and recognizing that we have a God who has prepared a seat for us at his table, but not just us, every person who's lost and hurting. He wants us all at his table. He is knocking at the door of every person that you have ever met or will meet. And so instead of excluding or dividing based on these obvious earthly loyalties and allegiances, instead of picking and choosing based on what team they might root for or what what choices they might have made, we can instead say, you have the God of the universe who chose you. And he wants you at the table with me. And so we choose based on that highest loyalty, not based on these earthly markers and brands and obvious allegiances. This is the picture. It doesn't say my guy is right no matter what. It says every guy is invited to this table and we are loyal to that mission, that purpose, that we want this table to infinitely expand to include everyone that our Christ died for because he died for them too. This is what our loyalty should look like. This is what I pray that it looks like for us. In fact, let's pray about that right now. Lord God, I give you thanks that that you don't You don't prioritize your own glory and allegiance to yourself, but that in fact you have made us your priority from the dawn of time, that you have shown yourself faithful and true, loyal to us, your children, that you don't let beasts stand in your way. You don't even let our own lukewarmness be something that causes you to to disregard us, but that you stand at the door and you knock and you knock and you conquer beasts, you conquer death, you do everything you can to give us your clothing to have us at your table. Lord, I thank you for that gift that you give us. And Lord, I pray that you would use us in powerful ways so that your table would not be empty, but that we would bring more and more people to experience the gold, the wealth, the comfort, the security that you want us all to have with you throughout eternity. We pray in your holy name. Amen.